Author Francis Chan once said, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Through the ages and across cultures, the church has alternately been either in tension with the culture around it, even, of course, to the point of persecution in many cases, as you know, or it's been in lockstep with mainstream culture, enjoying widespread acceptance, uh, or, of course, what is often the case where the church exists in culture somewhere in between those two extremes. And one of the mantras of the church in the modern era, at least in the Western world, has been a popular call for the church to transform the culture, to, to attempt to make secular culture around us more like our Christian culture. Uh, the problem with that is Jesus didn't call us to make a better culture. He called us to make disciples. And so the mission is focused squarely on human souls, not on human culture. Because when we focus on culture instead of souls, first of all, uh, first of all, we lose sight of the mission to make disciples. And secondly, inevitably, the church ends up looking far more like the culture than the other way around. Because the further down that road that we go, eventually we reach a state of consonance, uh, harmony between the church and secular culture, which, of course, would seem like a good thing to figure out a way uh, to make the world like us so we're not at odds. But it doesn't work because it's counter to our mission because consonance always leads to conformity. Okay, the more we try to bring the church into a state of harmony with the culture around it, the more the church begins to look like the culture around it. And the more the church looks like the culture around it, the less effective the church becomes at making disciples. About once a year, I share this research from one of my favorite scholars, Nancy Piercy. So some of you have heard it where she studied the growth of the church from its inception to present day. And one of the consistent trends that she discovered was that every time the church was in tension with the culture around it, it flourished historically. While in every period where there was consonance, harmony between the church and the culture around it, the church uh, and specifically church growth flatlined. And the longer that consonance existed, the more the church began to decline. Here's a quote from that research. She says, It is a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. And so historically, when the church is not focused on transforming culture through appeasement, in other words, uh, when we're not trying to make the world like us, that is when the church makes disciples most effectively, when the church is actually counter-culture. Because that's attractive, of course, to people who are seeking a change in their lives. Think about it. If someone is searching for something different in their life, right, something new, something that isn't uh, what they already have, why would they run to the church if the church looks exactly like the world they're already living in? And so when the church looks just like the world, right, when we, you and I, 
when we look just like the world, I'm not talking about aesthetics, of course, I'm talking about our message, when we adapt the message of the gospel to be as palatable to the world, as acceptable and least offensive as possible, so that people will like what we have to say, then we're no longer making disciples of Jesus Christ. No, we're just trying to make people like us which has become so common, honestly, in this present church age that we've created an entirely new category of the faith. It's one that we refer to as lukewarm Christianity, where you can simply believe that something is true without actually having to commit yourself to it and still be a Christian. It's belief without conviction. It's faith without change. It's religion without a rebirth. It's religious creed without power. Listen, it's, it's affiliation without transformation. And it's how the church today describes someone who in no way, shape, or form fits the description of any true follower of Christ in the Bible. In fact, that phrase, even the idea of a lukewarm Christian, that isn't in the Bible. That's a title that we've made up based on Revelation 3, 15 and 16, where Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so we refer to those people Jesus was describing as lukewarm Christians. But that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say they were Christians at all. No, in fact, he went on to say they were wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 17, listen, every single time the word blind is used to equate someone's spiritual condition, it's talking about lost people. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to spit them out of my mouth. He's not describing Christians. We've interpreted the cold people Jesus was describing as the non-believers and the hot being the committed Christians with the lukewarm people being Christians who aren't quite as committed as those who are hot or quite as lost as those who are cold. But that's not what Jesus is describing here. For that matter, nowhere else in all of Scripture does Jesus or anyone else describe a state of religious belief where you can exist somewhere between being lost and being found. No, you're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. There is no in-between. Okay, this letter in Revelation was written to the church in a city called Laodicea, which was on the banks of the Lycus River, but the waters of that river were muddy, completely undrinkable. So the city had a system of aqueducts uh, built that piped in water from two other cities. About five miles to the north, was the city of Heropolis, which had, and by the way, still has these wonderful hot springs full of minerals that bubbled up from the ground. They were used therapeutically, sort of like a hot tub. And so one set of aqueducts piped in the hot water from Heropolis, except that by the time the water traveled five miles to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm at that point. And so the therapeutic benefit of the water being hot was lost. And because it was so rich in minerals, it made people sick when they tried to drink it. 
And then 11 miles away to the southeast was the town of Colossae, which was famous for the cold alpine streams that flowed down into it from nearby snow-capped Mount Cadmus. And that water was wonderful for drinking, very cold. And so Laodicea had a set of aqueducts that piped in this very cold water from Colossae. Except that after traveling the 11 miles through the Turkish heat, the cold water was lukewarm by the time it reached Laodicea. And so this city, Laodicea, had become famous for its lukewarm water, which was useless for drinking and useless for therapeutic purposes. And so Jesus was saying, look, I wish that you were either hot or cold, because either one of those options would be wonderful and useful, but because you're lukewarm, just like your water, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And listen, the word spit in verse 16 is far too polite, because the actual word in the ancient Greek, emeo, it means to vomit. So Jesus is literally saying here, if you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth, just like your water makes people vomit when they try to drink it. He's not talking about Christians, is he? And of course, this is not a passage that we teach a lot anymore because it makes people uncomfortable. And we don't want to be uncomfortable. We want people to like us, to like our message. So we don't teach this anymore. But I'm just telling you, we'd better teach it. We better teach it with honesty and conviction if the mission matters to us. Because as unpopular of a message as it may be, it's the only one we were given to deliver to lost people. Specifically, to lukewarm people. That's the mission. To tell people the truth about Jesus and the life that he's calling all of us to live. The fact is, listen, Jesus was not popular with most people. Because his message was subversive. It, it stirred up a lot of trouble and rubbed people the wrong way. The Pharisees, the religious people who thought they were righteous people, they were lukewarm. It's why they hated his message. Yet Jesus never worried about what other people thought. He never wavered in his faithfulness to share the truth with great humility and, of course, with grace and compassion and love because he understood that was the mission and he was resolved to carry it out no matter the cost to him personally. So he didn't allow himself to be distracted or derailed from the mission by worrying about whether or not people liked him or what he had to say, which meant he was willing to say and do whatever needed to be said and done, even though that often got him in a lot of trouble. And I'm just telling you, if, if the mission matters to you, then you have to be willing to do the same, even when people hate you for it, even when they try to stop you. And I'm telling you, some will, just like they hated Jesus and just like they tried to stop him. But uh, the fact is, sometimes that's a part of the mission, as we're going to see today, as we continue working our way through First Samuel this morning, where we find these two men, Saul and David, whose lives were so closely linked that what one did dramatically affected the other. And yet, while one of them wanted more than anything to carry out the mission of God for his life, the other wanted more than anything for people to like him. And, and what you have is a, is a story replete with drama and betrayal and mystery and violence and romance and intrigue and victories and defeats and on and on. It's like, uh, it's like reading a movie script. But listen, it's more than that because it gives us a glimpse into the reality that carrying out the mission of the gospel in this world cannot be accomplished by people 
who are lukewarm. You hear me? The mission of the gospel cannot be carried out in this world by lukewarm people. There isn't one single aspect of Jesus' life that was lukewarm. In fact, just try and name one person in all of Scripture who accomplished anything great for God by being lukewarm. There isn't one because it isn't possible. Because the mission demands a white, hot commitment to making disciples. I'm telling you, it's all or nothing. There is no room for anything in between, as we'll see. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time. We were in 1 Samuel 18, and we'll start at verse 6, where we stopped, and read through verse 16. So 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 16 to begin. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands, and that what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. A military processions after successful battles were common. Uh, it was a common ritual in the ancient Near East, in uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, in fact, and ancient Israel, where grateful mothers and wives and daughters would show their appreciation by composing these songs that memorialized the men's military successes. And along with the singing, there was dancing and tambourines and other instruments. And actually, uh, archaeologists have uncovered ancient clay figurines in Israel and Phoenicia and Transjordan that all depict these celebrations. So it was a widespread practice in antiquity. And that's what was happening here as David and Saul returned to Gibeah after their great victory over Goliath and the Philistine army. What was not common, however, was for those songs to give credit to anyone but the conquering king. And so for anyone else to be publicly mentioned in the celebration other than Saul would have been noticeable enough. And yet David wasn't just mentioned. His accomplishments on the battlefield were lauded by the singers as exceeding even the king's own accomplishments. When it says Saul was very angry, it's much more than simply being angry or offended as we think of it. Saul actually saw this as evil, as a personal attack against him because for the first time Saul connected David with Samuel's earlier prophecy of an anonymous neighbor to whom the Lord had given the kingdom of Israel. If you'll remember back in chapter 15, which is why Saul says, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? 
Saul's starting to put it all together. And so the next day, David is back to playing the liar for Saul in his home, something David had been doing for years at this point, but now it's different. Because now Saul sees David as a threat to his throne. And so Saul raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And the word rave, nabah, in the Hebrew is the same word that is routinely used in Scripture that means to prophesy. In other words, this was more than an angry tirade by Saul. He was actually prophesying under the influence of a harmful spirit. It was false prophecy, to be sure, pouring out of him as he's consumed by jealousy and rage and hatred because of David's popularity and success. And so Saul makes a decision. I will pin David to the wall. And so he hurls his spear at David twice. How many of you... If your boss decided to hurl a spear at you one day, it would show up for work the next day, right? Or how many of you would hang around long enough for him to do it twice? But David's willingness to remain in the room long enough for Saul to retrieve the spear after the first failed attempt and then take a second shot at him. And he does it again in, in chapters down the road. It speaks volumes about David's commitment to carry out God's mission for his life because he knew he was called to be king. Yet he also knew that was going to come in God's timing. And so even at the peril of his own life, David stands by the king for the sake of his mission. And for Saul's part, well, he's completely undone by God's favor in David's life. And so he sends David back into military service, hoping that David will be killed in battle. Because when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And what a terribly sad commentary on the life of a man who was chosen by God to carry out the mission of God, leading the people of God. And yet because he was more interested in being popular than he was in the mission God created him for, Saul started comparing himself to anyone and everyone he saw as a threat to his own popularity. He compared his popularity to his own son, Jonathan, back in chapter 14. He compared his popularity to Samuel, the prophet, back in chapter 15. And now he's comparing his popularity to David. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul simply could not handle the pressure of not being just like David. And ultimately, it was his undoing, because I'm telling you, comparison will ruin you. You hear me? Comparison will ruin you. In fact, nothing will keep you from being able to carry out the mission that God created you for, like comparison will, because your part of the mission requires you to be you, not someone else. Right? God, God already has someone else doing their part. He doesn't need you to do their part too. He needs you to do your part. But you cannot do your part as long as you're trying to be someone else. Okay, God's role for you in this world is unique to you. And so whatever it is you're comparing yourself to, listen, that person can't do what you were designed to do the exact way that you were designed to do it. Only you can be that person. That's what's so beautiful about simply being yourself. The fact that you're not like anyone else. And that's a good thing. That's the way it's supposed to be. So you understand, when you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, what you're actually saying is, God, you didn't do a good enough job 
when you created me. You didn't quite get it right. You understand that is a profound insult to a perfect God. According to Genesis 1.27, we were all created in the image of God. And we never reflect his image more accurately or more beautifully than when we are being authentically ourselves. Because we each uniquely represent one part of his body. In other words, God created you to be you. He didn't create you to be your neighbor. He didn't create you to be your coworker. He didn't create you to be your sibling. He didn't create you to be your parent. He didn't create you to be your friend or boss or anyone else. So why do you keep trying to be someone other than exactly who you are? Because the person God created when he created you is exactly who you're supposed to be. This is why, by the way, comparing yourself to other people actually has the opposite effect that we think it will. Because when you spend all of your focus and energy trying to be more like other people, what you're doing is rejecting the one person God created you to be. You. It's also a great way to become a lukewarm person. Because you lose your true sense of purpose when you focus on becoming someone you were never meant to be. Because then you're chasing someone else's purpose, which breeds dissatisfaction and disappointment in your life every single time. See, God handpicked Saul to be king. And in the beginning, Saul was humble, obedient, focused on making the most of the person God created him to be. But as soon as he started comparing himself to other people, again, uh, it started when his son, Jonathan, <clears throat> attacked the enemy while Saul hid in a cave with his army. It continued with Samuel, who did, uh, who did what Saul was afraid to do, killing the enemy king, Agag. And now it's David, even though Saul is still the king. Right? He's still the leader of God's people. He's still conquering their enemies. Saul is more focused on who David is and what David is like than he is on who God created Saul to be. And it ruins him. And listen, it will ruin you too. Because no matter how hard you try, you will never be as good at being that other person as they are. Because you weren't created to be that other person. You were created to be exactly who you are. Saul never realized in his lifetime the fullness of who God created him to be and what God wanted him to accomplish because he was too busy comparing himself to other people. And so he lost his purpose and he became lukewarm. That's the tragedy of comparison. When you focus on trying to be like someone else, this world is robbed of you. Who you were meant to be and what you were meant to accomplish. Because listen, no one else can ever be as good at being you as you. So don't deprive the other people in your life of the one person they actually need you to be. The person God created you to be, the only person who was meant to accomplish your unique purpose in this world. That's you being authentically you. Author Bob Goff said, we won't be distracted by comparison if we're captivated with purpose. Let's keep reading verses 17 through 19. 
Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Melethite, for a wife. Unsuccessful in his attempts to kill David, Saul still has a vow uh, to fulfill. And no matter how much Saul may not want David to be married into the royal family, he knows that he at least has to make good on the offer of marriage because he put it out to the entire army in the previous chapter. So everyone knew that Saul had offered to give one of his daughters in marriage to the man who killed Goliath. And so now it's time to make good on that promise. So Saul offers Merib, his eldest daughter, to David with the added caveat that I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. In other words, I'll let you marry my daughter on the condition that you continue to go out and fight the Philistines because Saul's hoping that David will be killed in battle, as of course, your chances of being killed in battle increase in direct proportion to the amount of time you spend on a battlefield. And, and if David is killed, then Saul's problem of having David in his family is no longer a problem, right? But David has a problem as well. First of all, he can't afford the dowry that would be required to marry one of the king's daughters, which becomes clear in the next part of the story, as we'll see in a moment. Okay, so in antiquity, when a man married, he paid a dowry, some amount of wealth to the bride's father. And the more important or prestigious the bride's family, the higher the dowry price. And yet David was from a poor family of farmers. In fact, uh, they were so poor, they had to send their own son out to tend the sheep, which was typically a job reserved for the lowest of servants. So first of all, David knows he could never afford the dowry price to marry a daughter of the king. And so Saul probably relieved, doesn't even offer an argument. He simply gives Merib to a man named Adriel. Interestingly, by the way, probably as a form of judgment on Saul's family for his own sin, all five of Adriel's and Merib's sons were killed by the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 21. So the offer for David to marry Merib is rescinded as soon as David expresses his inability to meet the requirements of the dowry. Yet it's actually much more than that, at least on David's part, because for David, it's not just about being poor. It's about being humble. Think about it. At this point in the story, David is a national celebrity. The entire nation of Israel loved him. All the king's staff loved him. The king's own son, the crown prince Jonathan, loved him. And as we'll find out in a moment, Saul's younger daughter, Michael, loved him. All of Israel Loved David. Women wrote and sang songs about David and danced for him. And Israel's most dreaded enemies, the Philistines, were in fear and awe of him. David was famous. He's like a rock star. He's famously loved. And at the same time, he's famously feared. Of course, of course, he deserved the king's daughter in marriage. There was no one in all of Israel who deserved to be married to the king's daughter more than David. And yet the moment she's offered to him, David's response is, who am I? Who am I? My relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. Listen, David was a lot of things, skilled, fearless, brave, 
powerful, handsome, confident, wildly popular. He was many things, but the one attribute that protected David through the most unimaginably difficult circumstances more than any other was humility. You see, humility will protect you because it keeps you from believing in a false version of yourself. Pride blinds you to who you actually are. It actually keeps you from seeing exactly who God created you to be. Pride will lead you to believe in all sorts of things about yourself that aren't true. And as a result, when you're full of pride, you make really bad decisions because you're making decisions for the person you think you are, not the person God says you are. While humility, on the other hand, guards your mind from believing in your heart, from accepting that you're something you're not. It keeps you grounded in the reality of who God created you to be, not the fantasy of who you think you should be. Listen, the mission that God has called you to requires you to be authentically you, not some other version of you. In fact, his will for your life cannot be accomplished in your life when you're pretending to be something you're not. So look, in order for you to do what God has called you to do, you have to be who God has called you to be, which requires great humility, which, of course, is hard sometimes because we all have these aspects of ourselves that we wish were different, right? I mean, let's be honest. We all have things about ourselves that we don't like. And so we try to inflate those aspects of ourselves that we don't like instead of just owning up to the reality of who you are and what you're here to do. When you do that, listen, when you self-inflate certain aspects of yourself, what you're saying is, God, you didn't do a good enough job when you created me. Who I am is not good enough. So I have to inflate the parts of myself that God didn't get quite right when he created me. This is the true evil of pride. It puts us on a throne in our lives that we have no right to occupy. You see, at the center of every one of us, at the the center of every person's life, there's a throne. And whoever or whatever occupies that throne is what rules your life. And whatever rules your life is what you spend your lifetime serving. And if you read the Bible from one end to the other, you will find that what has occupied the throne of the majority of people's lives throughout biblical history is exactly what occupies the throne of the majority of people's lives today. It's themselves. Most people place themselves on the throne at the center of their own lives. It's our human nature to do so, which is why most people work and plan and live out their lives in ways that are primarily self-serving, which you would think would result in a lot of really happy, satisfied, fulfilled people. And yet in reality, what you find is just the opposite. Some of the most affluent and affluential people in the world are just as deeply unhappy, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled as anyone else because they're trying to occupy the throne in their hearts that was meant for God alone. That's the evil of pride. It elevates us to a status on an equal plane in our own hearts with God, which is exactly what separated Satan from God, right? He thought he could be equal with God by trying to elevate himself. And so that's where humility comes in. Because it protects you from believing that you're something you're not. Right? If you consider David's fame and popularity and reputation, he could have easily said, you know what? After all that I've done, 
After all, you boys were shaking in your sandals up on that hill when I went down there by myself and killed the giant. After everything I've done for you, prove myself to these people. Yeah, you're darn right. I deserve the king's daughter. So yes, I'm going to take what is rightfully mine. But he didn't. Instead, he chose to remain humble even after all of his success. And when offered the king's daughter, the first words out of David's mouth were, Who am I? Instead of, let me tell you who I am, David asks, who am I? He chose to stay humble, and it protected him throughout his life. In fact, the times when David uh, does have to face calamity in his life that he brings on himself, those are always the times when he let pride take over, and then he began claiming things that he thought he deserved. Things he thought he had earned. And of course, it wasn't until he humbles himself before God that he's able to continue being the man God created him to be. That's what humility does. It protects you from believing you're something you're not. That's the reason Saul was so far away from God. Pride. Because when you allow pride to take over, you're no longer following God. You're following yourself. And when you follow yourself long enough, eventually your commitment to self becomes greater than your commitment to everything else. And your desire for the mission of Christ in your life becomes lukewarm. As you occupy the throne in your own heart. But listen, the truth is, you will accomplish far more in your life for the sake of Christ by being humble than you ever will being full of pride because you're never more authentically yourself than when you're being humbly honest about who God made you to be. And for that matter, the mission requires us to be authentic. There's so much inauthenticity in this world. The last thing lost people need to see is Christians pretending to be something we're not. In fact, there's been far too much of that already. Okay, look, we're not celebrities. We're the salt of the earth. We don't have all the answers, but we have the answer. We're not perfect. We are redeemed. We're not better than anyone else, but we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus every day. Okay, when the world looks at a Christian, what they should see is the very definition of humility and authenticity. Humble people being real, being honest about themselves, flaws and all. People who love and reflect Christ in everything they do. But that cannot happen when you're full of pride. The great 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards said, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David and they told Saul and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. 
Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? The servants of Saul told him thus, and so did David speak. And then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time it expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So as soon as Saul finds out that his other daughter, Michael, is in love with David, he hatches yet another plan to see David destroyed. Because first of all, as we'll learn as we work our way through the chapters yet to come, uh, this girl, Michael, was a hot mess. Her whole life was a dumpster fire. She had a laundry list of questionable character traits and evil practices in her life. In verse 21, when Saul says to himself, let me give uh, her to him that she may be a snare for him. The word snare is theologically significant. It's the word makash in the ancient Hebrew. It's used throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, to describe the dangers of idols and idol worshipers. And sure enough, we learn in the next chapter that Michael, David's soon-to-be wife, is an idol worshiper. And listen, Saul wasn't stupid. He knew that his daughter was an idol worshiper and that she loved David, which meant there was a reasonable chance, as far as Saul was concerned, that she could lead David astray, religiously, and ultimately out of God's favor. And then the second part of verse 21, which is the second part of Saul's plan, uh, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him, which Saul will ensure through the dowry that he will require of David, a hundred Philistine foreskins. And of course, the Philistine warriors aren't going to line up and let David circumcise them, which means he has to kill a hundred Philistine men, which represents a high likelihood in Saul's estimation that David will die. So what does David do? He gladly accepts the challenge, not because he thinks himself worthy of the king's daughter, not because of pride in his ability to kill Philistines efficiently, not because everyone wants him to accept the king's offer, but because of the last half of one sentence from Saul. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies, that he, Saul, may be avenged of the king's enemies. That was all that David needed to hear. Because even though Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear twice, David was faithful. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to his mission. He was faithful to his people. And he was faithful to his king. So faithful, in fact, that he brings back double the foreskins required by Saul to honor the man who's been trying to murder him. And because David was faithful, he was able to thrive in the most inhospitable environments, in the most difficult circumstances where most people would either completely give up or demand retribution for themselves. David just continued to faithfully honor 
and serve his king. And as a result of that faithfulness, every time the Philistines attacked the Israelites, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed, okay? David was living proof that you can not only be faithful even when your circumstances make it incredibly difficult, but if you remain faithful, faithfulness will reward you. Back in 1 Samuel 12, 24, Samuel said to the people of Israel, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done, he has done for you. In other words, what our faithfulness is supposed to be based upon is God's faithfulness to us, not other people's faithfulness to us. Right? Saul wasn't faithful to David at all. And yet that had no bearing on David's faithfulness to honor and serve Saul because his faithfulness had nothing to do with what Saul had done for him and everything to do with what God had done for him. But in our culture today, that would be seen as weakness because we honor those who honor us, don't we? We serve those who serve us. We respect those who respect us and we're faithful to those who are faithful to us. The problem with that is God's word doesn't say be faithful because other people are faithful. No, he says be faithful because God is faithful regardless of how other people treat you, which, listen, is a deeply counterculture way to live your life. And yet, because most of us only want to be faithful to people who are faithful to us, that's the only reward we ever receive, the faithfulness of other people, which is great. But listen, it's nothing like the reward you receive from God when you're faithful to his mission in your life by focusing on other human souls, even when they're not faithful to you, even when they mistreat you, even when they have nothing to offer you back. So just take a second and think about the people that you go out of your way to spend time with. Is it because they have something to offer you? Or is it because you have something to offer them? Do you seek out relationships with people of high reputation? Or people of little reputation? Do you prefer being around people who make you look important? Or people who will never get you noticed. Because look, Jesus purposefully sought out people who had absolutely nothing to offer him. People of little reputation or even low reputation. People who never had any means to elevate his status in the community or among his peers. Why? Because they were faithful to him. Give me a break. Most of the time, all they did was fail him. But he was faithful to them anyway, not because they were faithful, but because the Father was always faithful. And that was Jesus' mission, to faithfully seek and save the lost. And guess what? That's your mission too. And look, living that way, it's not going to always be easy or self-gratifying, but it will reward you in ways you could never experience living a lukewarm lifestyle for yourself. You see, the fact is, uh, Jesus was not popular with most people because his message was subversive. It stirred up a lot of trouble, rubbed people the wrong way, and it's going to do the exact same thing for you 
it's supposed to. It's not a lukewarm way to live your life. But look, there isn't one single aspect of Jesus' life that was lukewarm. In fact, there isn't one person in all of Scripture who accomplished anything great for God by being lukewarm. Not one. Why? Because it isn't possible. Because the mission demands nothing less than a white Hot commitment to making disciples. You see the mission. Your mission. It's all or nothing. There's no room for anything in between. Let's pray.